Hello there and welcome to Defiance. I'm your host Peter McCormack and today I have an interview with Nathaniel Rich, the author of Losing Earth, a book which looks at the birth of climate denialism in the 10 years from 1979 to 1989. Where the world had reached scientific and political consensus on the causes and solution for climate change, including the scientists at ExxonMobil, the oil and gas industry's efforts to thwart policy change through misinformation, propaganda and political influence ultimately led to inaction. Now, I've been diving into the world of climate denialism this week, sharing thoughts on Twitter and following the evidence and sentiment of those who are in disagreement as to whether climate change is real, caused by humans and the scale of the risk. I've been referred to blogs and YouTube channels by people I can only compare to as Alan Crumweed, the blogger in the Steven Soderbergh film Contagion, non-experts who are piecing together bits of information to create a narrative to suit a climate denial agenda. Most of the scientists or papers I've also been referred to with a little research lead back to funding from lobbyists connected to the oil and gas industry and their misinformation campaign. It is certainly confusing and there are certainly loud and passionate voices who believe that climate change is either a hoax or a tactic for the government to exert control and raise taxes. But the scientists I have spoken to are in agreement. Climate change is real, it is caused by humans and inaction may lead to severe consequences for both humans and biodiversity. So in this interview I talked to the author of Losing Earth, Nathaniel Rich, where he discusses the birth of climate denialism and the genesis of the oil and gas industry's coordinated effort to thwart climate policy through misinformation, propaganda and political influence. But before we get into the interview, I do need to thank my sponsor Kraken, the best place to buy Bitcoin. Consistently rated the best and most secure cryptocurrency exchange, Kraken puts the power in your hands to buy, sell and trade Bitcoin. Are you a Bitcoiner? If not, and you would like to learn more about Bitcoin, then please do check out my other show, What Bitcoin Did, which Kraken also sponsors. Bitcoin is a decentralized peer-to-peer digital currency without any central authority. By not having any controlling party required to validate transactions, Bitcoin is both trustless and permissionless. It is an opt-out of government fuckery. And as Edward Snowden said, Bitcoin is freedom. Find out more at kraken.com, which is K-R-A-K-E-N.com. Also, if you are enjoying Defiance and you want to support the show, there's a number of things you can do. You can leave me a review on iTunes and subscribe to the show. You can follow me on social media at Peter McCormack and you can share it out with your friends and family. The reason why we fight is to draw attention to issues and to fix it. Resilient, resolute, defiant in the face of impossible odds. We are in the beginning of a mass extinction and all you can talk about is money. Hundreds of protesters turned out singing Glory to Hong Kong, an anthem of defiance. Hi Nathaniel, how are you? Good, great to talk to you. Yeah, great to talk to you again and thanks for coming on the show and great to read your book, a fantastic piece of work about a whole part of history I, I didn't really know about and it's made for a very interesting week for me, which we'll get into. But obviously we're going to be talking about the, as you said, the genesis of climate change denial, where it came from and the background and essentially the period of about 1979 to 1989. Um, a good place to start, actually. Let's start with the background to the article and the book. You know, where did this come from? You, from you, and can you talk to me about the work that was involved to actually do this? Yeah, I was. I'm a writer at large at the New York Times Magazine, and the the book began as a as a very long article for the magazine. I was I was asked by my editors if I wanted to write a single issue length article. It was the second time. The Times Magazine had had done this, had dedicated the entire issue to a single story, 
and they wanted to do it about climate change. And so I, you know, it, it was something I felt that if I were to take on this responsibility and to write a piece that would be, you know, given this level of, of prominence that I had better do something that hadn't been done before, um, you know, tell a part of the story that, 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 that wasn't known and tell it in a different way. And, and in fact, I felt there was a huge opportunity to do so. I had felt a, a real frustration with the literature up to that point on, on climate change. I felt like there was a lot of um, good reporting on, you know, the science, on uh, the technological progress or lack thereof, on uh, oil and gas industries, corruption of the politics, um, you know, projections of where things were, were headed if we failed to act. What I felt was was not very well known was how, you know, how we got to this point, how, how we let it get to, to this point of, of real uh, desperation uh, on an issue that, that is, is you know, an existential one for our, our civilization. I also felt that, that the literature hadn't done it, you know, that writers, serious writers hadn't done a good job of asking some of the, what feels to me the, the deeper or sort of more central questions that this crisis raises, which is to say, you know, how does our knowledge of this impending disaster, slow motion disaster, change the way that we think about our own lives, the way we think about our own future, the way we think about you know, the way the decisions we make uh, every day, you know, minor and major in our in our lives. And, and, and I felt like some of these larger questions, more sort of philosophical questions had also been been unexplored. So all of that led me to tell this story that that has largely been forgotten um, of a decade, 1979 to 1989, you know, after the point of scientific consensus, when you have uh, the first efforts by a, a handful of people to move, to move, you know, move the problem from scientific journals to the the realm of, of political action, and it's also the first time that people start to, and the characters I write I write about start to to think about what what will this problem mean for them in in, in you know very personal, intimate terms. So that that's how I settled on this idea of a narrative piece following these these major players who tried to solve this this problem before uh, it was too late and so it's it's a story of this period and it's you know they, they actually came very close by the end of the period 1989 to what was seen at the time as a global solution uh, only to fail at, at the last moment so it's it's a you know it's a it's a tragedy at it, at its core the story, um, but I felt that it was one that that had to be tell, told, and and one that that you know was was not only unknown, but I think our you know our 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 ignorance of this early history has informed a lot of the problems we've faced uh, ever since. And how much work was involved? Like, how long did this take? You know, how much work was involved in the research? How difficult was it to maybe to speak to certain people and kind of irk out the truth from people? What was involved in the in doing this? Well, I set aside about nine months for it, and I, I figured it would be a lot of research and a lot of work. It was, it was far, it ended up being far more than I had anticipated or, or really budgeted. It, I ended up spending about a year and a half to two years working on the piece. And then I spent more time 
expanding it into a into a book, I interviewed more than a hundred people who were, you know, in, involved in the the science and the politics and the activism during during the time I wrote about. I visited archives all over the country, you know, presidential archives, academic archives, spent a lot of time at the National Archives in, in, uh, in DC. And I, and then I had to, you know, just read a tremendous amount of, of material, a lot of newspaper, you know, con- contemporaneous newspaper reporting, academic, you know, a ton of academic writing, scientific writing, and personal, personal papers. Uh, so it was an enormous, um, it was a long process and, and, but one that was, you know, I couldn't have possibly, you know, begun to write it if I, if I didn't uh, do that level of, of research and, and, you know, speak to that many people because I had to, I felt that in order to tell the story well, I not only had to, you know, tell the, tell it accurately, of course, but I had to tell it with uh, a heightened level of detail because after all it's a you know it's a narrative piece it's written you know like a, a novel and so you, in order to tell a story in that way it's not enough to know you know when things happened and and you know and, and and what happened but you have to be able to describe you know people's voices people's behavior the setting the the clothes even the clothes people wore that you know so it, it, i needed a heightened level of detail for the story to work so that imposed a sort of higher level of rigor on the kind of research I did. And then the other thing is that people, people's memories of, of uh, even 30 years ago were just not as good as I expected. Of course, you know, now it it sort of makes sense, but you know, moments that, that are enormous historical significance today, 40 years later uh, at the time were not necessarily, you know, significant to those involved so you know trying to get people to remember a meeting they attended 35 years ago and to remember the meeting in great detail is you know very tricky and so that that just took a lot more time than i i had anticipated were there people who wouldn't talk to you who didn't want to talk about it and sometimes did you have to consider the answers of certain people maybe they you'd have to fact check a bit more or people were perhaps skewing history a little bit that's it's a good question and and i what was striking to me was actually the opposite was that everybody basically spoke to me um you know i spoke to people at the highest levels of of the oil and gas industry at the time and and what i had working in my favor that a journalist who's writing about you know a story today writing about whatever's happening at a, you know at exxon or bp um today uh advantage that they don't have is that the people I was speaking to are retired for the most part. They've moved or they've moved on to other jobs. You know, one of my best sources who is essentially the head of the American Petroleum Institute's environmental section, sort of a misnomer, um, but, you know, responsible for the, the oil and gas industry's messaging on environmental issues, is has now rebranded himself as a kind of green consultant to corporations and sees himself as an environmentalist, which I didn't you know, I didn't challenge him, him on because it did, I didn't, you know, it was irrelevant, but, you know, so, so these people don't have, they're happy to share their secrets or they were proud of the role they played. You know, some of these more nefarious figures, I mean, you know, uh, who, who, or I should say people who played more, what seems today a more nefarious role 
in this history, you know, in the creation of denialism, either defend what they did um, or are proud of what they did, as in the case of John Sununu, chief of staff to George H.W. Bush, who, who spoke to me at great length, and is a major figure um, in the story. He's very defiant to this day about his, his views and his, the actions he took at the time to thwart uh, a global treaty. So there was very, what, you know, the only, what I couldn't get was, which I would have loved to have gotten was, was into the archives of, you know, Exxon or American Petroleum Institute, um, you know, or BP, you know, anyone who's at, who's currently in the industry was not going to participate, but ultimately there wasn't much from the period that I wanted that I couldn't get through other avenues. Right. Okay. Well, look, it was fascinating. And sometimes when I'm about to do an interview on a quite emotive or divisive subject, I kind of have this methodology, which I'm not even sure of the ethics of itself. But, you know, I I did it with regards to guns. And I tend to kind of throw myself in, but take a very firm position one side, and usually the side I feel like I'm on and try and provoke response because it does a couple of things for me it it unleashes an army of researchers <laughs> you know an army <laughs> of researchers who want to tell me all the facts that are ref- referring to their kind of arguments and these could be anything on this from you know historical climate maps to you know uh, archives of documents anything but also you get a real feel for the sentiment of people like a real feel for the sentiment of people and yeah look it's not uh, entirely scientific because you know my audience is skewed by my career but this more than anything has really created a backlash and p- partly could have been my emotive uh, language of calling people idiots but it was really really kind of interesting but the difficulty it did then is that, and I'm not sure if this is the success of the strategy behind denialism or the fact that, you know, if I was being completely objective, that the science isn't 100% known. But I ended up getting myself in a position where I was entirely confused on, on everything because everything I questioned, everything I thought had to be questions to the point where people were pointing to me to information saying CO2 doesn't contribute to climate change. And it just became... I don't know, a very confusing process. And then I spoke to one of my friends and he said, the thing is on these subjects, you notice what the scientists do. They don't even engage in the debate anymore. They uh, present their work and they avoid the debate because they want to avoid the harassment and the waste of time discussing something which they know and they have 100% conviction behind. Yes, I mean, I, yeah, I don't know where to begin. I mean, I think the the... The, um, the the interest, I mean, what was fascinating to me about the story of this decade that I wrote about was that it, it's outside of this this whole, I mean, you say debate. I, I think that's even to call it a debate is you're you're already playing into this this propaganda of of there being two sides, uh, which you know we can discuss is something that was created in the late 80s, this this PR campaign, the highest levels of of API and and Exxon. But, you know, I think, I think what's fascinating about this period that I wrote about is there weren't, there was not a debate, you know, between 1979 and 1989, the science, you know, by 79, you have scientific consensus, you have the fundamental understanding of the issue is established. And since then, really nothing about the, 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 pic- the big picture has changed. We have more data, you know, we have, you know, 30 years of, of 
40 years of weather records and all the rest, sea level rise, you name it, um, you know, to add on. But the projections haven't changed and the, the, the big picture hasn't changed. But during this decade, you have total agreement uh, within industry, science, and even among politicians on the fundamental science, the idea that this is a problem, the idea that the oil and, oil and gas, you know, fossil fuel uh, use is created the problem and that something should be done, that none of this is controversial. Uh, none of this is controversial until 1988, 1989, the beginning of this, this oil and gas industry uh, propaganda, you know, created propaganda machine. And so, you know, the story from 1989 to the present is, is this so-called debate, you know, where all of a sudden people start taking sides on a scientific issue that, that is really not controversial um, up until then. What's striking to me about this period is that we failed to do anything, even though everybody agreed on the basics and it was not a political problem. And so I wanted to understand better you know, why when everybody was on, on the same side, as it were, when everyone agreed from Exxon, you know, to, to the most leftist, you know, congressman, why, why couldn't we do anything then? And that, I think, raises a lot more difficult questions about, you know, who we are uh, as a, you know, as a civilization, as a culture, and, and questions about just the, the democratic process. And, you know, it's, it's liabilities. Those are, those, those are more challenging questions to answer than, you know, well, why have we failed since then? Well, you know, we've had, we've had a, there's been this huge, um, you know, billions of dollars of money spent on to, to influence people to think that there's the debate that the science is uncertain and all the rest that, that story feels a little bit, um, you know, almost dated at this point. And, to the point about the scientists, I think scientists still, there is still a major block of scientists who still feel it's necessary to engage in these issues and to patiently point out, you know, why, even though there's a, there's a terrible winter somewhere, why that doesn't mean global warming is, you know, is, isn't happening or whatever. But I think where, the, where you've seen the most profound shift is actually in the activism, the, the sort of new wave of activism um, I think has absorbed the lesson of the last 30 years. And this is, I'm referring to youth, youth activism, the Greta Thunberg, the Sunrise Movements, uh, Extinction Rebellion. Um, they are no longer trying to painstakingly go through the science with people who are, you know, arguing against them, usually in bad faith. They've moved on from that and they're, they're speaking about the issue in, in really in moral terms. And that's, we can talk about that later, but that that's where I think you've seen a really profound shift in a refusal to really just engage in, in the nonsense. Well, so I tried, I mean, I tried for a few hours and, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd have something posted at me. So, well, please explain to me why there's more ice in Greenland over the, the last three years. And then you'd go to Google, you'd look up the research and it would be to do one, one specific glacier, but net ice, <laughs> there's been a net drop in the, the volume of ice in Greenland. And I just found myself going, this is, this is painful. These are sound bites that have been thrown at me. And yeah, I just, in the end, uh, I'm, I'm starting to give up on that. Okay. So let's get, let's get into it. So it, I think a good place to start would be, can you just talk about what happened pre-1979, what the build up was to that year? Yeah, I think it's important to recognize that even though 
you know, as we've said, that the, there's you know, the the date of consensus on climate change is 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 pinned to 1979. The basic understanding of the problem dates back to the middle of the 19th century. So by the 1860s, you have an understanding that more carbon dioxide in the atmosphere uh, creates a you know the more carbon dioxide, the more the warmer the atmosphere. Will get that there's a correlation between carbon dioxide concentration of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere and uh, temperature. Uh, by the end of the 19th century, there's an understanding that human beings, by releasing massive quantities of carbon into the atmosphere uh, by burning coal and and of course later, later more oil and gas, would would bring about that process. And but it's really not. Till and I and I have in the book a sort of a more detailed history of the the evolution of this this line of thinking. There's not concern about it. However, the turning point comes in the 1950s, 1956, 1957. Roger Revelle and Hans Seuss, or two two prominent geophysicists in in Southern California, at the Scripps uh, Institute. Uh, start to express concern that the, the 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 warming of the atmosphere is happening much more quickly than had been anticipated, and furthermore, that it would be a problem. You know, earlier earlier scientists in the earlier you know 20th century and and into the 19th century thought, well, you know, if things get a little warmer, great. You know, these are scientists living in northern European cities predominantly, and they you know if the winters are less harsh. Uh, that might be nice. Uh, it's only in the in the 1950s that it's understood by by Roger Revelle and others that it's not just a question of of warmth. That our entire economy, our entire all of our infrastructure, uh, our global trade, agriculture, all the rest is has been set up on the premise that the climatic conditions of the planet are stable. But if 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 it turns out that these conditions are unstable, that they will change, this is might undermine all of these major pillars of of our society. You know, where how we trade, um, how we grow our food, where people live, where our cities are, all the rest. So, in other words, by the nineteen fifties, you have a sense that this might be a problem. It's not until uh, the late. 70s, however, that scientists um, are able to more precisely predict by using using climate models, these these um, basically early computer programs, more predict in greater detail how how much warming will happen in in how many years, and and more precisely what what will be the repercussions of that. Um, and, and part of the reason they're able to do that is because Roger Revelle himself helped establish this um, a couple of sites where, where there are um, constant readings of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. And the top of Mauna Loa in Hawaii is the, is the famous one. You know, since then, we've had uh, like a Geiger counter, just a read on exactly how much carbon is in the atmosphere. So the data got a lot better. And after 20 years of this, they were able essentially to do the math and, and, and realize that this, these changes were happening far more quickly than had been anticipated and that the repercussions were terrifying. And a lot of this was happening began during the Jimmy Carter era, right? 
Yes. Uh, so you have a series of, of meetings and reports in 70, 77, 78, 79. And this is, this is during Carter's term. Yeah, so the, it, it, the reason I point that out is because it started during a democratic term and then flipped through to, obviously, the Reagan and Bush eras, which are Republican terms. And and the reason I bring that up, which is quite interesting, is that a lot of this felt politicized. And the reason I, I, I kind of identify with that is going back to my Twitter methodology, my broken Twitter methodology, is the number of accusations that came. So a lot of people started calling me a Democrat and I had to point out that I'm actually British. And I also had to point out that I've only ever voted conservative, which was quite an interesting thing. But it it suddenly feels like a lot of the identity around climate change and denialism seems to be aligned with political identity. Did you find find that was a like a, a common point of reference through your research? Well, it's certainly true that the issues become politicized, and it's become politicized on a you know left left right axis in the US in the last 30 years. I mean, you have John McCain running on cap and trade in 2008. <clears throat> um, he's, that's basically the last time, of course, his running mate, Sarah Palin, uh, was opposed and, and climate denialist. And, and so that's basically the last time that an, a Republican at the national level has you know, taken a, a stand for some kind of climate Policy, but what's fascinating about the period that that I wrote about is that um, it's not it, there. There is no such split. That you have, you know, some of the people who are calling and working um, the hardest for major climate policy during the 1980s are Republicans. They're Republican senators, uh, Republican members of Congress. You have, and and you know, people at lower levels as well. You have the head of George H.W. Bush's EPA, William Riley, is one of the, the strongest proponents of a, of a treaty at the end of the decade. And of course, you have George H.W. Bush himself uh, in 1988 running for president and making climate change one of the major issues of the campaign. When he, you know, he goes, there's this famous speech he gives in Boston Harbor um, where he positions himself in today's terms, we would say to the left of, of, his, of uh, his opponent, Michael Dukakis, the Democrat, saying that he's going to be the environmental president, uh, that he's going to solve global warming. He said, you know, those of you who think we can't solve the greenhouse effect haven't heard about the White House effect. And when I'm in the White House, you know, we will solve this thing. So it's, it's not a left-right issue. There are divides between the parties during this period, of course, on, on environmental issues, on environmental regulation, you know, Reagan uh, is, it, you know, comes out, especially at the beginning of his first term, deeply anti-regulatory, tries to, you know, thinks about cl- trying to, you know, close the EPA, um, is a disaster environmentally, uh, but but climate change and global warming isn't isn't seen as part of you know it's not included in that he doesn't um, in fact at the end of his second term after the negotiation of the Montreal Protocol which is the big ozone treaty his people say the signing they say you know our next uh, his head of his EPA Lee Thomas says the next time we get together we're going to do this kind of a treaty for global warming and. 
you know, I have the exact language in the book, but he says, you know, this is, we're going to get back together and, and, and do this for, for, for global warming. And so it's, it's global warming. And this problem is not seen as a, you know, on a right left axis. And I think that's in some ways was one of the hardest things for contemporary readers, especially in the U S to understand because it's, you know, there's no such thing anymore as a, uh, at least at the national level as, as a Republican who cares about this issue or even acknowledges it. But, you know, if you look back in 1988, you have major legislation introduced in Congress by Republicans that is, you know, more ambitious than what's today being proposed by the Green New Deal. So it's, it does take some work to wrap one's mind around that to see how the party has changed, or at least how it's eliminated this faction. Uh, from its from its ranks. Interesting. Okay, so let's go back to the February 1979, the first World Climate Conference in Geneva. Can you talk to me about the build-up to to that conference and also just talk a little bit about the key players, uh, Rafe Pomerantz, uh, Gordon MacDonald, and uh, Charney's report? Because that I think that's a really interesting build-up to that. And actually, when you're reading the story, you know, one of the things I noted myself, I was like, this does this is like a historical novel. Um, so I, I, I did appreciate uh, the work you'd put into that. Um, and I found myself being almost trying to ignore the truth of what you know eventually is going to happen because you you come in with a lot of hope. Yeah, and, and there is a tremendous amount of hope. There, you know, there there were a series of major international meetings um, in in Europe actually in the nineteen seventies, and I don't get into this in, in great detail in in the book, but that meetings that set the groundwork for what was would later come, essentially meetings with scientists from various different disciplines. There's no such thing as a climate scientist at the time there were uh and that was part of the problem there were you know geophysicists who studied you know there are people who studied the atmosphere people who studied the oceans people who studied agriculture uh and so on but they didn't always communicate with each other they were a bit siloed um but you have the emergence of these symposiums and conferences through the 70s with an intensification at the end of the decade to try to to grapple with 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 climate change and there's you know at first it's it's a relatively small group of of people um you know from different countries and different disciplines but they tend to they tend to meet each other at the same meetings and there's uh you know but 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 it's it's all within the scientific realm and and the shift the shift that happens is that in 1979 you have the first sort of non-scientists start to pay attention to this and start to think about, you know, well, what, what does this mean in terms of policy? And so the main, the main figure, one of two main figures in, in losing earth is uh, this guy named Rafe Pomerantz is totally unknown outside of, you know, DC policy circles. Um, you know, before I wrote the book, I hadn't heard of him. He was a young lobbyist for an environmental activist organization, friends of the earth founded by one of the, David Brower, who founded the Sierra Club, um, and he was someone who worked on air pollution issues during the '70s, um, the amendments to the Clean Air Act, which, of course, was a Richard Nixon uh, law. And he uh, was reading a technical uh, report about coal when he read in passing this mention of, of you know, essentially global warming, uh, the idea that by 
continuing to burn coal, we were dumping enormous amounts of, 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 of uh, carbon into the atmosphere and that it would have major, you know, uh, destabilizing effects on, on society. And, and he couldn't really believe that he, you know, he didn't trust his own reading of it. He figured that if anyone should have heard of this, this problem, it, you know, would be him. He's in the inner circles of, of sort of DC, uh, Washington policy around air pollution. And he did some research and he learned that in, indeed it was a huge problem, but there hadn't been much communication between scientists and politicians about it. And so he, um, he did what I think many of us in his position, what I think, what I, what I like to think I would do, at least on my better days, would be, you know, he basically went around to try to tell people what was going on. He was, you know, he was uniquely positioned uh, to be able, you know, he had access to everyone at the highest levels of the Carter administration. And he started to go around telling people about this problem, uh, figuring that that surely once once powerful people, once the people who ran government understood that this was a threat, that they would take some common sense measures to try to uh, combat it. And in in this process, he had this this it was a very strange uh, sort of comedic side sidekick pair of him and Gordon McDonald, who was at the time essentially the chief scientist for the CIA. He was right at the, the apex of where, you know, DC politics and uh, the scientific establishment. Um, and he had a long uh, history working for every, every US president going, going back to Kennedy. And he himself had become very alarmed by the problem. And so the two of them, this young environmental activist and this older seasoned physicist and intelligence officer made, made the rounds in Capitol Hill giving this sort of lecture course about global warming in the spring of 79, ultimately, you know, speaking to Carter's own, um, you know, chief scientist, science advisor, Frank Press, uh, and they made their presentations and they figured, well, surely this will, this will do the trick. Uh, and of course the first disillusionment is that, um, you know, people listen to what they have to say. Uh, they don't challenge it, but nothing actually gets done. Wow. Okay. And then how did, how did we get to the point of Jewel Charney's report? So out of one of those meetings, out of the meeting with uh, where, you know, Pomerantz and McDonald give this presentation to Frank Press, um, uh, Press asks the National Academy of Sciences, which is this, this august um, uh, group of, of the country's, you know, elite Science, scientists essentially uh, asks them to commission a report to test whether Gordon McDonald's, uh, you know, his hypotheses are accurate. McDonald, I should say, is is a member of the Jasons, which is its own fascinating story. It's this like elite secret <laughs> kind of cabal of of, of scientists who work on major issues of national you know, importance and, and, um, and often sort of war defense policy for the U.S. government. Donald with the Jasons, have, have, they've already published their own you know, secret report on, on global warming. And so the idea is that 
the National Academy of Sciences will convene this this all star group of sci of, of scientists, geophysicists, um, you know, nine nine or so people to review all of the data, to review the Jason's report, to review the the historical studies about global warming, and come to you know come to some conclusion about whether these predictions are accurate and essentially that's exactly what they they do they nail down you know in 50 years if there's no action the world will warm by approximately you know three degrees centigrade plus or minus one and a half degrees is the, the sort of prosaic result but essentially what it, it it does is it confirms the consensus that we're headed towards disaster and july 23rd 79 Everyone's called together to just talk about this, right? Yes, that's so the Charney group. So Jewel Charney, who's the seen as the you know the father of meteorology, you know the science of weather prediction, which of course gets a lot of flack. But he 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 essentially invented or was one of the leaders of uh, the science of weather prediction. He's he's in charge of this group of. Um, elite scientists who all get together at this this compound uh, in Cape Cod, where they for three days they review all of the science um, and they speak with the, the leading climate modelers and they test all these you know, the hypotheses and so on. And, and at the end of that time, they reach their conclusions and, and they write it up in a in a report and. Known as the Charney Report, uh, at the time, you know it doesn't. You know, no one in the public realm, you know, knows it exists. But but the Charney Report today is seen as uh, the moment of you know scientific consensus on on global warming. It's it's its projections haven't uh, are still you know accurate to this to this day, and that and since then we that's the moment at which. You know the science crystallizes, uh, and the big picture is is, is resolved uh, for good. Yeah. So this bit was really interesting for me because I did want to know about big oil. I did want to know about the role of Exxon Mobil. And you know, based on that report, I obviously reading your book, you know, this is the moment really that Exxon Mobil comes in. But the really interesting bit that stood out for me is is you know, obviously they set their own budget, they had their own scientists but it's that they wanted to know how much of the warming they could be blamed for. It was, it felt like well, the, a PR prep. <laughs> right. Well, the P the, the Exxon history actually begins more than 20 years earlier before Exxon is even Exxon that, you know, the earliest internal study that's been found, actually, I think the earliest ones were actually published in, in journals at the time. Um, there's a study from 1957, I believe uh, by humble oil, which is a predecessor to Exxon where even in that study, right, they're not testing whether, you know, CO2, increased CO2 in the atmosphere causes global warming. That's taken as, as understood. What they're testing in 1957 is to what degree is this increased uh, concentration of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, does it come from, uh, from Exxon, basically, from fossil fuel companies? And and they confirm, you know, even then that yes, the, the lion's share of CO2 in the atmosphere, of increased CO2 in the atmosphere over historic levels is coming from the burning of, of coal and oil and gas. Yeah, it was really interesting, this bit. And, 
you know, senior researcher Henry Shaw. So I've written down the quote, it behooves us to start a very aggressive defence programme because there is a good probability that legislation affecting our business will be passed. Yes, so that's that's then from the late 70s when uh, Exxon begins its own carbon dioxide research uh, office within its lab. Now at the, at the time, and perhaps this is still true today, Exxon boasts you know, the, the most impressive scientific laboratory of any company in the industry. It's the biggest oil and gas company, um, but it prides itself uh, also on having one of the, of having one of the great labs in the country. And they take it upon themselves to study just about every aspect of science and, you know, public health that touches on the oil and gas business. And so they have been following the carbon dioxide problem, you know, as I said, but going back to the 50s, there are studies uh, over the years from Exxon and, and other oil and gas entities. Uh, but by 1977-78, they, they form a dedicated unit to the, the greenhouse effect, and it's, it's run by someone named Henry Shaw. And... And I think that, and, and well, I think the letter you read actually is from a different different um, scientist named James Black, and they start to realize, well, this is a problem, uh, you know, just as the U.S. government does. This is a problem, and ultimately, there's going to have to be some legislation to address this, and and it behooves us to really understand the science so that we can participate in whatever that legislation is, and make sure that whatever's done is done, you know, responsibly and does, isn't done in a way that's that hurts us. So as I mentioned, like at this point, reading it like a novel, you know, reading it, following the story, trying not to know what's coming, I still felt like this this is a lot of hope here. You know, there's a lot of interest. It feels like there isn't anything politically, you know, there's nobody kind of moving against this. I, I just felt like there was a lot of hope. So at which point does it start does it start to really twist? Yeah, there, I think there are several phases. I mean, I think the first frustration comes uh, in the in the waning days of the Carter administration when there's a scene from this meeting that I I found, and this is I discovered this a transcript. Incredibly, um, uh, this is one of those really lucky moments as a you know researcher, a reporter that that you need for a book like this, where I, I came across these transcripts of a meeting that nobody really remembers or knows to have existed, which was the first efforts by Congress to develop legislation on climate change. The Congress, through through this sort of special committee on air pollution, um, which considered as part of its mandate um, the carbon dioxide question, gathered a group of, of 20 or so experts on this question to get together uh, at this bizarre sort of hotel in Florida on the Gulf of Mexico, this this kind of pleasure palace that had been, you know, uh, visited by, you know, people like Al Capone or you know, the F. Scott Fitzgeralds going back for decades. But for some reason, this is chosen as the site of this, this meeting um, to, to write some language for legislation that Congress can pass uh, about climate change. So Rafe Pomerantz is there. Henry Shaw, the head of Exxon's CO2 unit, is there. Uh, a bunch of academics, some congressmen, and and uh, you know scientists and so on, all get together, as well as some philosophers, which is so, sort of interesting and and forward thinking actually of of, of the 
congressional committee at the time. And they get together for a couple of days to try to develop some, some language for laws that could be, could be introduced. And they are so, um, even though everybody agrees, you know, understands the science, agrees that something must be done, they cannot formulate a basic, uh, you know, forget a pat laws, language for laws. They can't even formulate a basic um, expression of uh, a statement of purpose um, because they're, and, and it's this maddening, you know, to read it is just this maddening, you know, it's, it's a, almost a piece of comedy if it's, if it wasn't so tragic, or maybe that's what makes it comedic, but you know, because it's a bunch of scientists and academics and politicians, basically, they can't agree on the language. They they keep saying, you know, can't they can't agree if it should say, you know, these horrible changes are very likely to occur or um, will definitely occur or, or greatly likely. You know, just little um, semantics hold them back, and it and it gets to the point where Rafe Pomerantz basically throws up his arms and in disgust and and. You know, others at the meeting are reduced to, to tears, basically, at the, the frustration of it. And they end up leaving the meeting without anything really to show for it what, because what, everybody has objections. Yeah. Yeah. What are they fighting over, though? What's the deep, like, why, aren't, why can't they reach some consensus on language? Who, who's kind of, who's causing the breaking point? Well, there's, there's the combination of things. There's a certain, you know, there is the, and this is a problem you see over and over again with, with climate change is there's a real reluctance by scientists to make statements without qualifications, especially statements about projections of any kind. And this is sort of the scientific method. You know, even the IPCC reports is, you know, are impossible to read because they're just sort of defaced with all of these qualifications of, you know, this is highly likely to occur. occur this is you know, high certainty of likelihood or moderate likelihood to occur. Um, you know, no one will just out and out say, make bold statements. And, and, and that is, you know, you have, you, have, you have that factor. And then you also have the understanding that if they are to make bold statements, then some really bold solutions are required, which would cause, you know, massive changes and reforms to the way uh, we consume energy, right? So, I mean, you know, to, to make it a little bit simpler, we're talking about if, if by burning oil and coal and gas, we're going to destabilize, you know, our economy, our, our, our politics, all the rest, well, then we have to stop, stop burning oil, coal, and gas. But in 1979, 1980, uh, there's not a lot of appetite to, to say, all right, we're going to stop you know, producing energy in these, in these ways, in these cheap, cheap methods. And we're going to have to shift to technologies that at that point are, are relatively nascent, like solar and wind and hydroelectric and all the rest. So, you know, they can see what's required, but they can't bring themselves to demand this in 1979 and 1980. And so they, instead, they kind of run in circles. They say, well, we can't tell, we can't say we're going to stop burning coal, but then they say, well, if we don't do that, we're, you know, we're, we're headed towards disaster. So we need to say something. And they basically get into these rhetorical circles and loops where nothing actually gets, gets done because they're afraid to, or reluctant to really call for 
the the remedy that's that's required. Wow. Okay. So so from there, yeah, we go into the Reagan era, and as you said, he came in and he didn't seem to want to care about anything too much to do with the environment. Um, oh, you'd have to remind me, but something to do with coal. Did he want to increase production of coal? And he wanted to close down yeah, one massively unit? Increase, yeah, massively increase coal production. He wanted to open up public lands for just extraction of, of, of coal and oil and gas. Um, yes, he wanted, you know, he put he put industry people, I mean, it makes some of Trump's, um, you know, putting this sort of fox in charge of the hen house operations. It, it, it's, you know, it's that, it's that all over again, or it's the original version of that, um, putting oil and gas guys in charge of every regulatory agency. So the environmental movement, people like Ray Pomerantz are forced to abandon this, their efforts on, on CO2 because they're just, they now desperately are just trying to protect the gains they've made in environmental and regulatory policy um, over the last you know number of decades, Reagan's really trying to undo just about every kind of environmental protection, going back to you know the, the Teddy Roosevelt administration. It was also quite interesting in that era to see Al Gore start to appear because obviously we know in more recent times he's taken a very strong position on uh, climate change, uh, including his uh, I think it's two films now. But it was just very interesting to see him you know understand you know because i don't know the early stories i don't know the early records i only know you know the recent history of al gore but see this has actually been something he's been passionate about now for you know 30 odd years well 40, well i think it's it's it, right and what's what's what was striking to me and i was you know i interviewed him but i also interviewed uh chief of staff at the time he came to the issue you know yes he, it was something he was interested in he studied, he took a class taught by Roger Revelle, um, sort of the, the godfather of this of climate science, basically. Um, he took a, as an undergrad at Harvard, well, that's where he became aware of the issue. However, you know, his, his, his um, idea of, of taking this on as a political issue uh, was not really, my sense at least, is from, from my, my interviews and the research, was that it, it wasn't out of some kind of great environmentalism necessarily. Uh, there was a sense of political opportunism. He was a right. second or third term junior congressman uh, from Tennessee. You know, his father was a famous senator, but he was just making his his name. Of course, his father also had gone on to work for a coal company, which he, does, he still doesn't really talk about. But Gore... Uh, it's a, it's an indication of what the what the issue where the issue stood politically that Gore thought made the calculation that this was a political winner because there was no uh, nobody could be against you know trying to save you know save the planet basically this was an apolitical issue that he felt he could make his name on that if he uh, you know that he created essentially a his own subcommittee that he could have hearings on carbon dioxide uh, in 19, 1980, 1981. So he has some of the first hearings in Congress on the issue, but, you know, uh, and, and, and during those, during those hearings, the Republican members of his committee are, are you know, just as, as strong as he is in, in trying to call for some kind of action to be, to be taken. 
but yeah, of course, you know, it's, it's almost ironic given what happens to him later in his career. And it becomes, I mean, he perhaps as much as anyone is responsible, you know, maybe against his, against his, his, his best intentions, uh, but for politicizing the issue because he doesn't inconvenient truth is after he's already lost, you know, the white house in, in, in 2000. Um, but at the time, yeah, it's seen as this sort of apolitical issue that that can only bring him positive press. So what else happened during the Reagan era? You know, it seems like quite an unsuccessful. It seems like Reagan didn't engage too much with it, but at the same time, mainstream press was was picking up and being coming kind of more aware. There was that you know New York Times article, haste on global warming trend is opposed. That it, so it, it, I, what was kind of going on between you know the the White House and then you know conversely what was happening with the press? So the, yeah, there are a few headlines in the in the early decade, um, right as Reagan's taking office, including, you know, a front page article about a major study by James Hansen, the NASA scientist who by the end of the decade will become the the face of of climate uh, science. And he's the other main figure I write about in the, in the book, but essentially the issue drops off the map, right? From, uh, the time Reagan takes office until really his second term, once you get into 1985 or so, because as I said, the envi- even the environmentalists who are worried about this issue, or even you know people like Rafe Pomerantz worried about this issue, are too busy fighting off all of these other you know policies that Reagan is trying to introduce to really try to to push the needle on 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 something as big as as carbon dioxide. And so it's not until um, the ozone hole becomes a major political issue that climate change gets a gets a second you know second life really yeah because that that was the that was the political story of why that yeah why that comes to be yeah because that was the bit where it's kind of like all right we've got an opportunity here it's you know we have a an, an opportunity to bring greater awareness of climate change issues we can you know enact policy uh to reduce the CSEs going into the atmosphere. I mean, I, I kind of have all these memories of a kid as well. I don't, I don't know how old you are, but I'm 41, and I kind of remember it. Yeah. Um, I do too, yeah, and I'm I'm a couple of years younger, but I, I do also have a – there was really a sensationalist press coverage of the ozone hole. Yeah. Um, and there – you know, so after – you know, Rafe Pomerantz has for years been trying to get people to pay attention. He's basically like, you know, wringing people's necks about it and getting nowhere. And then the ozone hole comes along. And, and you know, what's fascinating about it is that, you know, it's – so the issue is that ozone over the Antarctic, levels of ozone in the Arctic have been depleted. Um, and it's understood that this is a problem that's been caused by the use of, of – uh, CFCs, you know, man-made chemicals used in uh, refrigerators and, and propulsants and so on, aerosol cans. But the the language used to describe the issue, which is which is a metaphorical language, the ozone hole. There's not real. There's not really a hole. It's it's you know the concentration of ozone uh, has been reduced. Um, it takes it sort of takes capture of the public imagination so that. You know, people have this idea, and this is this is reinforced by the, the hyster- really hysterical press coverage that the sun is is bursting through the atmosphere and is going to give everybody skin cancer and even make them go blind. 
and, and all these other horrific, um, you know, ideas are, are sort of become part of the, in the public culture, right. To the point where even like, you know, a five-year-old or a seven-year-old starts to become worried about this kind of thing. Maybe his mother's putting on more sunscreen probably in my case. Um, but that uh, panic led to the negotiation of what would be called, what would become the, the Montreal Protocol, which was the first uh, global environmental treaty. And it was a, it's, an, it's an, a treaty to reduce emission of a, of a chemical uh, in, into the atmosphere. And once that comes along and is, and it's highly successful politically, it goes from, you know, a concern to a global treaty signed by just about every country in the, in, on the planet within just a couple of years. And, and the Reagan administration also doesn't about face after originally, you know, poo-pooing the idea comes around and leads this negotiation. There's a whole history about DuPont and the administration there that save for another day, but um, basically, once that works, then the the CO two people realize that here we have finally there is a path forward, an opportunity, um, and it, this is actually the idea of a Republican staffer on the Environmental Committee in the Senate. He says, like, let's hitch this problem to ozone. It's also a global atmospheric problem. They're actually linked because CFCs are also a greenhouse gas and contribute to global warming themselves. And, and to this date, basically, the, the, the Montreal Protocol is probably the most effective thing we've done um, to combat climate change because of its success in reducing uh, CFCs. And, and so, uh, you know, Rafe Pomerantz is persuaded uh, reluctantly to go along, and it works. It's a marketing success, basically. Uh, and they say, well, if there's a global treaty, global atmospheric treaty for ozone, let's do a global atmospheric treaty for carbon dioxide. And it's widely agreed that this is indeed what's going to happen. And you have the beginning of the process, uh, the IPCC process, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change that comes out of this. It's modeled after the same process that created the ozone agreement. And so you have the beginning, you have this kind of rapid acceleration towards at last a global treaty that is at the time seen as the solution to global warming. Yeah, and the term I would have used is, is probably hope, um, kind of give you hope that something could be done. And also, I didn't I didn't know this part. Again, there's obviously lots of parts I didn't know, but I didn't know about Reagan actually signing you know, a pledge with uh, Gorbachev to cooperate on global warming. I wasn't even aware of that part. Yeah, in 1986, they they sign an agreement um, in this this big um, meeting in Moscow that Russia and the U.S. will um, Soviet Union and the U.S. will lead an, a global negotiation to sign a, a treaty. You know, you also have Margaret Thatcher speaking very strongly in support of a of a global uh, you know CO two treaty, and you have. Uh, the world leaders, you know, ready to to meet and negotiate the thing. Yeah, uh, one of the standout moments for me reading through it as well, you know, because I was looking for the real moments of 
uh, denial, like the, the the movement to denialism, like the what were the kickers, where, you know, wherever the bits it really kind of stood out. It, and the bit you've already mentioned, Hanson, but his testimony with regards to White House interference, and th- then the process they went through to try and s- stop that happening was like really super interesting. Yeah, I mean, particularly as you know, even at this stage, uh, industry is not. F- fighting it yet you know they are monitoring the situation but there's no voices in industry you know starting from 85 86 with the ozone treaty uh really until the summer of 1988 when it really breaks out as a as a sort of not only only a major national issue as well as a global issue you still have industry kind of participating in these processes. They're still, um, you know, they're going, attending the symposia. They're, they're talking about, you know, the issue as something of concern and something that the industry will help to, you know, to be part of a solution and all of the rest. But once you start to get real legislation um, and once you start to have real meetings by nations, you know, diplomats talking about, you know, what exactly is this treaty going to look like? How will it be enforced? What measures exactly will take place? That's when people at the, at the, in the oil and gas industry start to say, well, listen, we need to actually develop uh, some kind of policy on this. What's, what is our approach going to be? What's our line going to be? And, and what should we be pushing for? So can you talk about where it really starts to get kind of serious, the the real movement towards kind of very obvious denialism happens, what the key moments are. Because going back to the point there, if you read it by like a novel, you know, you get to the, how do you pronounce it? Is it Nordvik? Uh, Yeah, Yeah. Nordvik. I just had it, it's funny. Yeah, there's just a crew, a TV crew from the Netherlands came. They did a, a special on the 30th anniversary. Um, uh, and they said Nordwijk, yes. So yeah, Nordwijk. Yeah. So the yeah. you know, so what happened in Nordwijk? It's like when you mentioned it's a tragedy. You know, I hadn't I didn't think of it as a tragedy uh, until you said it, but it totally is because that was the moment I got to it and I was just like, oh. And I think the I think the reason my heart sunk is I just felt so sorry for everyone involved. You know, it was just such a disappointment. It's like ah, oh, we're done. You know, oh. <laughs> we're not going to achieve anything. What what were the key things that led up to that? And and, and the kind of the key points of uh, kind of like establishing this denialism. Right. Well, it, what's, what's, what's important to understand is that there is a political failure, which is at this, this conference that you mentioned in Nordwijk, which is the first high, uh, first meeting of um, diplomatic, of, of high level uh, ministers, environmental ministers, they're environmental ministers, first high level diplomatic meeting to, ratify the basic outline of, of, of a treaty, a global treaty, uh, as part of this UN IPCC process. And there's, there's the failure at Nordwijk, which we can get into why that occurs, and it's largely because the, the U.S. forces, um, forces the, the rest of the countries to drop the most um, crucial sort of binding uh, terms. But simul- almost simultaneously, you have this turn in the oil and gas industry, but but that doesn't affect the political failure. So there's a political failure that happens independently, and then 
there's separately the emergence of a countervailing force, which is the industry effort to thwart any kind of meaningful climate policy. So the, the story of the latter of the, of, the, of the industry, the birth of, of, of denialism, um, essentially, is you have a couple of white papers are commissioned, one by Exxon and one by the American Petroleum Institute uh, and the end of 1988 and, and, and early 1989. This is after um, James Hansen in the summer of 1988 gives this, this famous testimony before Congress where he says, you know, we already have proof in global temperature records that global warming has begun, it's, that it's um, irrefutable, and that the time is now you know, to act. It's the strongest statement uh, yet that had been delivered, and certainly in, uh, and it's delivered at the, the, in the middle of the ho- what is then the hottest summer in, in recorded history. It's an, it's an enormous amount of press, front pages of every you know, newspaper and magazine and, and television and so on. And you have, following that, more than 30 bills introduced in Congress, may, most of them bipartisan, wi- many of them wildly ambitious um, efforts to really to reconfigure um, you know, the way our energy system, which is to say our economy. At that point, API and Exxon uh, says we need to figure out where we what we're going to do about this, and they independently come to uh, the same roughly the same conclusions, uh, which is to say in these two white papers, um, which say we need to be an active participant in the political conversation. Um, we need to help you know influence what the legislation ends up being. And we need to emphasize our scientific credentials in doing so and our understanding of the issue um, that goes back decades, of course. We want to make sure that no laws go beyond what's merited by the science. We want to emphasize uncertainty in the, project, in the projections where, where the uncertainty exists. And this is an important, you know, this is not, of course, denialism as we know it, but this is the beginning. It's, it's saying, it's not saying that the science itself is uncertain. It's to say where there is uncertainty, we want to emphasize those uncertainties. Um, and we want to make sure, this is sort of most crucial, that we don't endorse any policy that will hurt our bottom line, that will hurt profits. So that's the very beginning. And so they launch, you know, some basic lobbying efforts. They start to, you know, talk to politicians on the Hill, uh, to make some of these points. And then as almost an, an afterthought, um, the American Petroleum Institute through its own uh, press office, these two, two guys, um, former you know, newspaper men who are now working for industry, uh, they start to launch a kind of PR campaign where they try to talk to editorial boards about these issues. And they find a handful of scientists. At first, it's, it's literally, uh, I think, four people who they who are willing to uh, stress, you know, emphasize uncertainties in the science and to even say that the, the, the basic you know, understanding is uncertain. And some of them, they pay money. I, I learned that it was you know, $2,000 for an, an editorial uh, at the time. And, and you can see it reflected. You can see this campaign reflected right away in, in, 
the news coverage at the time in the States. Uh, you have articles begin to appear at the end of 88, early 89, that for the first time question the state of the science on climate change. And the same few scientists' uh, names start turning up in these uh, reports. And all of a sudden, an issue that, you know, was really a one-sided, one you know, the, uh, unanimous, you know, sense of concern and anxiety about, you know, how to solve this problem, all of a sudden has two sides. There's some scientists saying that maybe this is overblown. And the, the, and this, this has an enormous, this ends up being enormously effective uh, for the goals of, of industry. Um, and you start to get these major headlines saying, you know, is this all overblown? And what, what ends up happening over that year and in the years that follow is that they realize that this press campaign is enough, that, that, that it's so successful and changes is, is so, so effective in, shape, in shaping the public narrative that uh, it essentially becomes the entire, you know, of course, they still lobby and, and all the rest and give money. But it, it becomes the main animating operation by the industry is to sow doubt. And they keep, over the years, then they keep pushing the line, the rhetorical line of what they're claiming further and further until you ultimately get into this, this sort of bizarre um, sort of funhouse world of, of climate denialism, where all of a sudden the uh, under, science that had been understood for more than a century uh, becomes a matter of you know conjecture and debate. Did you look into how much alignment there was between the strategy of the oil and gas industry and big tobacco? Because most of my research seems to say there's some alignment, but was this coincidental, or do you think people are actually looking at what big tobacco had done and achieved? It's not coincidental. They um, they actually used the same PR firm one one of the, the the major PR firms used by um that was hired by by the API and the API's sort of climate sort of shadow climate organization um were the were the big the big tobacco PR company. So it's the same it's literally the same people. But it's also not a strategy that they had it's not just tobacco and um global warming it's 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 essentially the approach they took on every environmental and health concern that faced the industry it's always to emphasize uncertainty you know cast doubt question the authorities by the time you know thanks to the success of of big tobacco and the pioneering of these uh strategies this was endemic already this was something they they tried Whenever there was concerns about, you know, benzene or uh, acid rain, or um, for that matter, the CFCs and Dupont, when they before they came about and realized they could make a lot of money by making the replacement chemicals for for CFCs after the ozone treaty, it was the same exact strategy they used. It's manufacturing of of doubt. You know, this is the subject of uh, Naomi Oreskes book on 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 the various industries and the use and the success of this uh public relations strategy so it's not a coincidence um at all uh but what's striking is how how much success they were able to have when it came to global warming 
you know, they, they tried the same thing with, you know, the health effects of benzene inhalation, say, and it, but it was not as widely successful as, as it was in this issue. And, and I think there are a number of reasons for that, that, you know, we could go into, but yeah, no, this is the basic playbook. Although with, with climate, it's, it's gone much farther and to, to much sort of wilder extremes. Well, yeah, I mean, you can see that now because, you know, I guess what we're talking about is the early days of seeding early doubt, but now you've got multi-decades of of doubt of of manufactured fake science, harassment of scientists, um, confusion. And one of the interesting things I found when looking into denialism is that it's not – the strategy isn't actually always to deny facts. It's to actually accept them and create a debate about them, about how real they are, you know, what the extent of them are, rather than just to deny every single point it, with the hope of creating the confusion and allowing the debate to go on and on, which was something I didn't even know about. Again, that was super interesting. Yeah, it's it's uh, sowing doubt. And once you have, once you have some doubt, um, it becomes a lot harder to pass the kinds of you know trans transformative policy that this problem uh, requires, and you know it's remarkable. What's been most surprising to me lately is that you know this strategy has been successful in some ways, even you know has even worked upon those who are at the vanguard of of climate activism and policy. So one example, for instance, uh, that that comes to mind is. You know, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who's, who's become one of the main you know, faces of the uh, Green New Deal, most strong, you know, strongest proponents and, and generally speaks very eloquently about, about it and, and, and passionately. Recently, I was watching one of her, her speeches where she was laying out why we need a Green New Deal and so on. And she says, you know, the American government has known about this problem since 1989. She, she has a way, she was born in 1989. So this is a date that I think resonates for her. You know, since I was born, uh, the oil and gas industry has known about it since 1989 and the American government has known about it since 1989. And it's, of course, it's like, you know, well, the American government has known about it since the 1950s and the oil and gas industry has known about it just as long. And so even, even someone like her, who's educated herself on the matter, has still essentially absorbed this line that this is a new problem or that this is a new understanding. When of course the the basic idea that carbon dioxide in the atmosphere creates warming and that that burning fossil fuels uh, adds to the concentration of carbon dioxide and that, that goes back to the 19th century. So you know, even it, it, it's extremely pernicious the, this influence and the, the doubt and. And so that even people who are not, you don't buy into the whole fantasy, it still sort of moves the goalposts, as it were. Um, and it's, it takes a lot of work to get people to understand the reality after they've been, been poisoned by the, this propaganda for, for decades now. And I, and I think, you know, as you said, it's not just the doubt, it's not just the, you know, trying to, to sow doubt, but it's the the rhetorical line of what the claims are by the industry have also moved from saying it's far too uncertain you know the 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 dangers are so, are too uncertain for us to introduce major policy that's 89 by 2000 you say climate change isn't even real right it's way more radical you know it's like going 
from saying like, uh, I don't, this is, I'm not going to think of the most elegant example off the top of my head, but saying, you know, affirmative action policies won't work for these reasons to saying there's no such thing as racism. You know, it's like, it's, it's so radical uh, intellectually to go, you know, you're moving back beyond, you know, forget the 1980s, you're going back, you're denying the science, science that's been established and was in textbooks going back to the 1950s, if not earlier than that. And that's, that's the incredible, that, that tells you how successful this has well, yeah. I think the example I was thinking it'd, it'd be like saying smoking is now not unhealthy. <laughs> smoking is right. Fine. <laughs> well, or or yeah, I mean, it'd be like saying, which of course the smoking industry did do for for years. Yeah, of course, smoking's good for you. You know, it's like it's almost going there. Or, yeah. So, well, so that's the level of stuff I've been dealing with. So it ranges from people saying climate change isn't a problem. Uh, these are natural cycles. My favorite one, though, is is being called a Marxist. This is a Marxist propaganda to to create taxes to tax you. This is control, and I, I'm just trying to imagine, like, especially after reading everything that you had put together, is that I don't see a room of people all sat down together, multi decades planning and orchestrating fake climate change in order to tax us in uh, the 2020s. Well, but that's a very important one, actually, because, in fact, the original the person I think of as the original denialist is not someone um, in industry, but it's John Sununu, who's the chief of staff. And we haven't gotten into the, the collapse of Nordwijk, but basically you have the George H.W. Bush administration moving towards, um, you know, leading a global negotiation. And, you know, as I said, Bush ran on this. His head of his EPA was very strongly, you know, in, in support of, of, of pushing for a climate treaty. Uh, and then you have his chief of staff, who's who's the most powerful person in the in the White House after the president, John Sununu, who's a fascinating, you know, cantankerous figure with a PhD in mechanical engineering, considers himself a scientist, um, even though he's been, in, been a governor of New Hampshire for nearly a decade and and credited with delivering the White House, or at least the Republican nomination, to uh, George to George W. Bush after he won the primary in, in Sununu State, he takes it upon himself. He's the first person to really be against policy on climate and to even question the science. Um, and I think he's a he's an interesting case because I think he actually comes about it independently. Um, he has some skepticism based on his own work in computer modeling as an engineer, although he did a very different kind of computer modeling than a climate scientist did. But crucially, and this is a connection to your your point, he uh, was deeply suspicious of politicians using science to as the basis for for major sweeping economic policy. So he, I mean, I did see in your mentions. There's mentions of you know, the Club of Rome and, you know, that population bomb. And he felt that, and this is now we're back in the 1980s, he felt that the concern over carbon dioxide problem was very similar to concerns, earlier concerns about overpopulation and, you know, the fears that we would use up all of the, our, as a species, we would exhaust our natural resources and would not be able to uh, sustain, you know, civilization uh, fears that he felt had been largely debunked. Of course, you know, those are separate debates about, you know, population, overpopulation, and so on. 
But he felt that climate change was just another one of these examples of a problem that scientists had identified that then leftist forces had used to push for essentially a Marxist agenda, as you say. And I think, so some combination of his sort of scientific skepticism and his uh, this really conspiratorial thinking about these, these left shadowy leftist global, you know, forces using science to, to yeah, attack people or to, to destroy economic growth uh, were responsible for him uh, coming out very forcefully against climate policy. And, and he's just about single-handedly, I learned in my reporting, was able to thwart the negotiation for the, the first IPCC treaty, and uh, which in retrospect, you know, you could, I think you could argue uh, persuasively was, was the, the closest we've come to a solution. So that that whole view that this is a kind of leftist trick does date back and I think even predates the industry's efforts to sow to sow doubt. Interesting. We should probably try and close it out because we've jumped about a bit here at the end, but we should probably try and close out what happened in 1989. And, and add some context in there why you chose that as a point to end it. Look, I know we talked about what happened at Nordwijk, but there must have been a reason. I mean, you could have gone on further, right? You probably could have done another 10 years, right? So there, there must have been a reason you closed it out there. Yeah, I, I, yes. And I, you could have, I could have started a little earlier. I could have, you know, gone on later. I think the story of the Clinton administration and, and its failure, you know, when Al Gore is vice president for eight years to negotiate, um, to make any progress, uh, and the failure of Kyoto um, in the 90s, is that's a story that hasn't been really told. And I'll let someone else <laughs> do yeah. it. Um, but Paris, uh, yeah. so many. Then on to Paris and all the rest. Um, but the reason I chose 89 is because you have at Nordwijk, which is November 89, the prospect of a binding treaty to reduce emissions is destroyed. And at that point, we never get close. You know, there are, there are opportunities through the IPCC process to, you know, to take it back up and go forward, but we never did. The Bush administration at that point um, stops expressing, you know, major support for some some kind of climate treaty. There are a few, you know, factors at play there, but basically George Bush's economic council turns against it shortly thereafter in early 1990. And the industry begins its campaign at, at exactly the same time, end of, you know, in 1989, end of 1989. And it really takes off uh, in, into the 90s. And so essentially, the way I look at it, I looked at it for the piece is essentially you have a paralysis sets in on the political process and really in the public debate over, over climate policy at the end of 89. And, and we're still in that paralysis to this day, you know, for all that's been done, for all the... Uh, achievements and, and progress we've made in you know, technology and, and renewables and all the rest, we're no closer, if anything, we're farther from a meaningful uh, climate policy on both nationally and, and, and globally. And so I felt that, you know, we've been stuck ever since and we got stuck uh, at this moment at the end of 1989. Uh, and so I wanted to tell the story of you know how did how did we get stuck and i and so to go on beyond that i felt was not 
necessarily outside the scope of the story. And also I should say, there are plenty of, of great, you know, books and, and, and good journalism about the industry and, and everything that, that's happened since then. So this, this is, Losing Earth is really the prehistory. It's the, the story of this, this opportunity, uh, this golden opportunity that we had and, and lost that I felt was a way into some of, as I said, to some of these larger questions about, you know, uh, the ability of our species to take on a problem of this of this uh scale these dimensions yeah so that really leads me to my my next question is like how do you reflect on all this because we're 31 years on now from the kind of where the book closes out you know you've you've essentially done a retrospect on what happened but and and obviously live through live through all of this as i have like how do you reflect on it all now because you know i've read the book but you did the research you did the year and a half on it you did all the interviews how do you reflect on it all well, you know, I think it at times I think it when you're confronted with with this story, you know, you can't help but despair. Um but at other times, you know, you have I mean one thing that's happened that I was able to write about in the book that I couldn't address in the original article is that there has been in the last year year and, you know, two months really, uh the emergence of not only a new wave of activism, but a new, you know, language of activism, a new, a new approach, uh, which is to, to reject, really to reject the arguments or move beyond the arguments uh, that have been made in favor of, you know, climate policy for the last 30 years, which were essentially arguments formulated by Rafe Pomerantz and James Hansen and, and Al Gore even in the, in the eighties, which was, an appeal, which I would I describe as a, an appeal to reason. You know, essentially, the, the line uh, until now has been: we know, you know, we have the science, we know that we need to act, we know what we need to do. You know, stop burning fossil fuels and transition to renewable energy, and and we know that the longer we wait to act, the worse off we'll be. So it's essentially making an appeal to rationality. You know, here are the facts. We know what to do. Let's do it. Um, this is you see this from Rafe Pomerantz in 1979. You see it from James Hansen in 1980. You see it, you know, into Inconvenient Truth from Al Gore 25 years later. You know, maybe the pitch of the message becomes increasingly, um, you know, high pitched, I guess, or hysterical. You know, this is crazy. We're stupid not to act. This is insane that we haven't acted. That that kind of thing. But the, what, what the new message is, is to say, you know, no longer, that's not the emphasis anymore. Of course, you know, Greta Thunberg would say it's stupid not to act, of course, or any, any activist would. But the, the, the language is now uh, a moral language. They're saying, you know, it's wrong not to act. That, uh, you know, they say things like addressed to, you know, world leaders, economic leaders. Uh, your neglect of this problem is stealing our future away from us. Is is killing people? Is killing us? Is 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 destroying our our hopes of having you know children or families? And I think even sort of more important, sort of at a higher level, uh, is to say our failure to act um, is is undermining. Um, you know, the most, our most fundamental is a betrayal of our most fundamental values and the, the, the values on which our, our, you know, democracies and really our civilization 
stand, which is to say, you know, if you care about equality, if you care about uh, freedom, uh, if you care about, you know, do, you know, doing the right thing, you know, any any form of injustice, injustice, you know, bothers you. You have to, you know, you have to act because climate change exacerbates just about every form of injustice uh, we have in our society. You know, it 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 oppresses the oppressed. You know, the people who are already you know, victimized by our 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 systems of economic systems or government systems are, you know, will will bear the brunt of the changes that are coming. You know, poor people, people of color, you know, the worse off you are, the worse off you will you will be. Uh, and so the new understanding is is understanding the issue as a social justice question um, and as as something that's undermining just about every system that we rely on for a modern society, whether it's you know trade or migration or defense, you know, if you care about any of these things, then you care about climate change. And so that's a different kind of argument. And I think it's, it's a more honest argument. It's a more um, comprehensive, you know, it's understanding climate change is not just a problem that's out there, but as the fabric of the world we in, you know, like, like it or not, we're in a, a climate change world. Uh, this is already, you know, affecting our just about every aspect of our of our lives in you know in ways that maybe we can't quite perceive yet if we're you know wealthy member of a you know wealthy country in the west but will increasingly you know do so and i think that kind of argument has had some success politically in the us certainly um, and the question is how far will it get us and how quickly that's always the question with climate change is that, that you know how rapidly will we change our ways? And that's that's the that's the big question. And there's, you know, I think the important thing to understand is there's an enormous range of outcomes still available to us. Um, and the question is, you know, do we want to be, you know, in control of our fate or just, um, you know, let let the worst uh, come for us? All right. So, look, on a final point. Somebody actually tagged me in a tweet during this interview. That's quite interesting. Somebody's just put out that today there is a global political effort to convey vast new powers to central banks in order to fight climate change. This is not about climate change. This is about narrative. This is about power. This is about the road to serfdom. And I just want to add something into that. I'm just going to uh, read something. This this is something that came into my DMs um, from somebody I know actually quite well. Um, came to me and said, the majority of idiots will believe the propaganda made for idiots, but only takes a special and truly retarded kind of idiot to get so charged up by it and start attacking others for it and pinning their own personal and professional reputation on retarded lunacy. Retards like you are truly detestable, not only just because you're stupid, but because you are programmed to annoy and harass and bug everyone who is not an idiot like you. This is why people like you never deserve any attention. So, yeah, these there is conspiracy around this, or there is... I mean, these people obviously genuinely believe that climate change isn't real. Well, I assume they do, uh, unless they're just selfish bastards. But I assume they believe climate change isn't real. And because I've kicked up a bit of a storm, when the show goes out, naturally a few people are going uh, to listen to it and probably look for confirmation bias. So pick apart things you say and start throwing articles and tweets, etc., etc. But 
there are some people that you've lost hope with. There's some people that are going to be on the fence. But, you know, do you personally have a message to anyone who is still in denial about this? You know, what would you actually say to them? Um, well, it's interesting. I mean, when you, well, what do I say? I don't, I don't, I don't care. You know, I mean, I don't, I don't, I'm not an activist. Uh, anyone, I'm not, I don't have an ax to grind here. I've reported a story that's been, you know, rigorously fact-checked by the New York Times and it's not controversial to anybody who bothers to, you know, source it. So, the, you know, the people who are going to insist on this fantasy, you know, there's a certain segment of the population is going to do that. What are their motivations? Um, I can only guess, but I don't, I don't see it as my job to convert people or to motivate people. I think there's plenty of people who have taken it upon themselves to do that and, and, you know, do it well or don't do it well. I, I would distinguish from, you know, I, I think of that kind of writing as activist writing, where you're writing a story to motivate people to act or to change the way they think about the world in some way from what I tried to do, which is to tell a story and to write a story that where you know, to, to, to ask questions that don't have such um, clear answers, uh, questions about, you know, how, how does, how does this, the presence of this, this horrific uh, reality touch our own, you know, personal lives, for instance, how does it change, you know, how does it make one question our faith in, in the way we operate our society and our democracies, all the rest? You know, how can we have any faith in principles of justice and uh, equality uh, as a society when we fail to act on this? And then, you know, and quest more personal questions about how should we feel about, you know, uh, our own complicit, our own complicity in the issue, in, in the problem, no matter how, you know, virtuously we might act or hope to act. But but what you're, the, the larger point you're making that, that these, that this kind of debate that you found you found yourself in it brings up to me is, you know, I recently read a biography of of P. T. Barnum, um, who sort of you know knew more about the wisdom of of crowds and the way people process, you know, the public processes information. I think than than just about anyone. And he, after you know, a career of of uh, putting on these exhibitions where. Uh, that he touted as, you know, some form of humbug or, you know, acts that were too, too, uh, you know, surreal to be, to be true of, you know, half mermaid, half, half, per half persons and, um, you know, midgets and so on. He late in his career found that his public having, having become uh, so skeptical, you know, he, he sort of had educated them in skepticism that, that, they had it, it got to the point where they didn't believe anything and that they would even deceive themselves through their own incredul in, in, incredulity. In other words, that, you know, there's a danger certainly in being, you know, taking whatever anyone gives you at face value and, and, you know, overly trusting the authorities and so on. But I think there's a, there's a parallel or, or you know, opposing danger in being so skeptical that you're not even able to believe uh, scientific consensus or that the distrust of expertise is so much 
that it forces you to question the most basic, um, you know, verifiable facts and, and reality. I think that is its own danger. And I think that's a danger that we've gotten into as a society where, um, you know, and it's a danger that, that corporations capitalize on and institutions capitalize, you know, that if you, if you question everything, then, then you, of course you have to question something like climate change, no matter how much evidence that you're given uh, to support it. And so that, that for me is sort of the, the greater fear is that people become so hardened that they even can uh, delude themselves. And, 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 and that, that is what I, I worry about as being sort of the most pernicious aspect of it. A, a, a fear or a, a, a sort of violent response to, to, to facts where, where you, you know, you, you assume there's conspiracy um, wherever you're looking. Well, I think that's a that's a good place to end then. So again, thanks for your time. Really appreciate it. You giving me a, another big chunk of your time, and I'm looking forward to getting this out. Uh, you deserve to obviously tell people how to find the book, how to follow your work. Um, yeah. Um, well, thank you. I appreciate your having me on, and and I really enjoyed uh, speaking with you again. Oh, do you want to tell people where to uh, find the book? Oh, oh <laughs> where um, to find you? Book, oh. Uh, the, uh, yes. Um, well, my, well, the book is losing earth, um, a recent history, although it has a slightly different title in the UK, it's, uh, losing earth the decade could have stopped climate change. Yes, correct. That's the version I've got. Um, but yes, yeah, it's, it's available in, you know, your local bookstore uh, or on Amazon. It's the books, uh, being also published in, I think more than a dozen languages that, at this point and uh my i'm at nathaniel rich uh on twitter and my website's nathanielrich.com fantastic well listen i appreciate all your time appreciate everything you've done with this and yeah good luck for the future i mean i've got no idea if there's going to be a part two in this story that you're going to write uh i assume you thought about it but if you do it i'll be sure to read it <laughs> oh thanks I, I feel that i've said my piece on this particular part of it now but um but but certainly it's raised some larger questions, I think, that that I will continue to pursue. And I, I feel like in some ways, if you're going to write about the world today in any fashion, then, you know, you're writing about climate change, even if it's not the explicit subject of the piece. That it's, it's part of, you know, it's part of the, the world we live in now. And, and once you see it, I don't think you can unsee it. Well, listen, I wish you all the best. Um, that's two pieces of yours I've, I've read in detail now. So anything that comes out in the future, I'll be keeping an eye out for them. Uh, good luck. All the best, Nathaniel. I appreciate it. You too. Thanks a lot for having me. Thank you for listening to Defiance. I do hope you enjoyed this interview with Nathaniel. I will be following it up with an interview with a climate scientist, looking deeper into the science behind this and debunking some of the arguments against now, this show reflects all the shows I've been making for Defiance where there are two opposing voices and a wealth of information, misinformation and personal opinions. Navigating complicated topics like this does come with many challenges and this is a subject I will also be discussing with somebody else soon and it's also worth probably checking out my previous show on information warfare with Molly McHugh. Anyway, look, thanks to Nathaniel for coming on the show. If anyone has any feedback, do please feel free to get in touch. My email address is peter at defiance.news. I also recorded another show with Nathaniel for my other podcast what bitcoin did looking into the mysterious disappearance of quadriga cx ceo it's probably worth checking out if you enjoyed this one with nathaniel also i need to say a big thanks to my sponsor kraken the best place to buy bitcoin consistently rated the best and most secure cryptocurrency exchange 
Kraken puts the power in your hands to buy, sell, and trade Bitcoin. Find out more at kraken.com. Also, if you want to support the show, there's a number of things you can do. Please leave me a review on iTunes and subscribe to the show. Follow the show on social media or share it out with your friends and family. If you have any questions about the show, then please feel free to email me on peter at defiance.news. 